This is The Analysis, a weekly examination of the culture in light of truth. I'm Deanna Huff. And I'm Mark DeMoss. Join us as we investigate and analyze the environment of the world where we live. We will be shedding the light of God's Word on the issues. And responding as Christians to influence followers of Jesus Christ to share the gospel with those around them. Well, Deanna, we're talking today uh, about the fact that it's almost Christmas time, and we're recording this right at the very end of November, and everything is transitioning to people's time and schedule and energies going into the Christmas season, and our hearts and minds turn toward Jesus Christ and His birth and His coming, and you can talk about that in terms of Advent, you can talk about that in terms of the manger scene, and we're thinking about it in terms of just the incarnation, the coming of God in the flesh. And when when you put those terms on it, you you kind of pull Jesus out of the uh, the manger and out of this kind of picturesque, sentiment, sentimental uh, theme that happens. That there's good things attached to that. But when you start talking incarnation, you pull in this other aspect, and you start thinking about oh, it's God in the flesh. And now you begin thinking about some specific claims that Jesus is making. Or at the very least, we might back up from that and say, when the church says it's the incarnation of Jesus, the church is claiming he's God. So then maybe it begs a question, is Jesus claiming to be God? Is that something we applied to him? Or is that something that we're believing in because of what he said? And so that's going to be the subject of our conversation for at least the next few times together as we think about Christmas and Jesus in Christmas. And so just kind of thinking through that, but to do that, we look first at the scriptures and think about, okay, this is the story of Christmas and the claim that we are making about Jesus and his incarnation is coming out of a text, an ancient document, scriptures related to these stories how do we think about those texts and what do we do with those? That becomes really the first question that we have to deal with. Is this a reliable thing? Yeah, it's interesting because there's three criteria that people who are studying in this area use, particularly that you and I have talked about before, which is right. we use the acronym ACE for it. It's interesting because they use the they look at the text and examine it and see, did the authors really believe what they were saying during that time period? Right. And we, we can look at the Gospel of Luke. He says, you know, I'm writing these things to you as an accurate account. And you can see that in other mm-hmm. passages as far as they're trying to write and give this historical account. Secondly, they want to know that the text has not changed. Yeah. And with the... Uncovering of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that was very important. And so scholars have been able to go back and look and see that before the time of Christ, you know, we can examine these documents in comparison to the texts that we have today and see that the message is consistently the same. Right. And then lastly, of course, would be the external resources, which we have the accounts of Josephus, which is a common name to be used to identify that Jesus really died on the cross, that there were people who were attesting to the fact that they saw him after the fact. Mm -hmm. We have the documents even in the New Testament to be considered reliable, right? So 
You can use this acronym ACE to say the authors did believe what they were saying. There was a changeless text. There's these external documents. So without going into a long podcast on if the Bible's reliable, we can establish that early on. Yeah. And then we can go back and look at that and ask those questions if we need further evidence to say that it's reliable. But noting that it's reliable, which we would, and using that criteria, which even unbelievers would note that it's reliable, I think you're right on when you say the question becomes, what did Jesus claim? Yeah, yeah. And and that's that's the important part, and, I, and I'm glad you kind of gave that acronym because I think that's easy for people to remember. Uh, and one of the first things that they may happen if they're sitting down and talking uh, at a Christmas dinner or, a, or an event at, at work around Christmas time, and they begin to express things about how they celebrate Christmas and Jesus's part, and somebody goes, "What are you talking about?" You know, yeah. or do you believe those stories in a real quick manner that they can remember? Oh, these three things, I can share that really quickly and just establish. Hey, this is something. This is something reliable. Now, this is what the Bible says. Yeah. So I, I've established it's reliable. Now, let me tell you that these are claims Jesus made. Like this isn't stories a group of people made up and then put it in the church. The Bible made these claims. The church is just celebrating the claims, and so that becomes now what we're doing. The Bible's reliable. What is the claim of Jesus? And so Jesus and other world religion leaders, people can bring up Muhammad or Buddha or whomever they may want to, and they're, they're religious leaders just like Jesus, and they want to kind of put them on the same par and the same level. And yet we see Jesus is making some claims about himself that other religious leaders never were making and that's that's a distinguishing feature for Christianity. Yeah, it's interesting because when you look at Buddha, he never claims to be God, right? right? And part of them are out of an atheistic bend of Buddha, and then you have another sect that has tried to make Buddha God, and yet he never made those claims. Right. When you read the Quran, they point to Allah being God, but... Of course, the prophet Muhammad, he never made any kind of claim of being God or, or doing these things. You can look at Hinduism and, and you look at Krishna and the, you're not seeing the claims that Jesus is making. And, and he's saying, listen, I, I am that I am. He is God in the flesh. And we see from the beginning pages of Genesis 3 that he's coming as Savior, yeah. and he's going to save his people. Yeah. He wants to be in relationship with this creation that he's he's made, and you can see this all the way through. This message isn't new in the New Testament. You see it even in the Old Testament. So this claim is something that I think we have to, we have to examine, and we're going to be confronted by. Yeah. And, and we're in, in a time in our own society and culture where more and more people from other countries are coming and bringing with them their culture, their religion, their background. And uh, those, those, I don't want to say you're necessarily in conflict, but those, those are meeting within the marketplace and within the world, our societal structures. 
uh, and how are we going to have those conversations? How do we express what we believe over against what they believe? Because they're coming from a platform of we have a religious leader and we're making them into this deified person and we're coming from a totally different place. Mm-hmm. We're not making Jesus out to be something. He made claims, and we're in a position to either accept those claims and submit now to the fact that he's Lord, or to reject and deny those claims and, and go on as if it doesn't exist. And so as Christian believers, we've said, I see the claims of deity that Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. He paid for my sins. I'm going to become a follower of his. It's not, I'm not believing that some other body of people, some early church group said, oh, by the way, Jesus was such a good religious leader that we just decided to put him on the pedestal of God and now we worship and follow him. Yeah, which is interesting because that's what Islam would say. They would say that after the early church, that this idea of him being God in the flesh was connected to him later on. And one of the things that we want to point out is that he is God in the flesh. He is divine. And when we have these ideas in the marketplace and we're discussing them, which we need to discuss them because C.S. Lewis noted the most dangerous ideas in society are not the ones being argued it's the ideas being assumed the dangerous ideas are the ones that are assumed not the ones that are argued and i'm using argue in a loving respectful sense of having a discussion but we got to be able to discuss these matters because they do contradict and they both can't be true god Mm can't be Jesus and God in the Bible and in the Quran he's nothing but a man that didn't even die on the cross so to be able to have the discussion to point is the Bible really reliable is Jesus are Jesus claims really true and we need to confront that and look at the evidence and then state whatever the evidence leads to yeah that's that's a good point Um, so Jesus is making claims. We're saying that. Where do we see some of those claims? Who is this character, Jesus? There's several places we can look to see those claims. I know that, you know, we can look at John 1 1 from the beginning, Jesus is God. We can look at John 5 23, Jesus is worthy of honor and due to God. That is due only to God. John 14, 1. Have faith in Jesus the same as you have faith in God. He also gives life just as the Father gives life in John 5, 21. But we always hear those ones about John, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think as we were talking prior to this, some of the places we want to look today would be in Mark. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think when you turn to the Gospel of Mark... Um, you have this unusual account because, and especially as you think about Christmas, where are you going to go to get the story of Jesus' birth, the coming of God in the flesh? You're going to turn to Luke, uh, and you're going to get this real detailed narrative account of the birth event and all that occurred there. You're going to turn to uh, John, as you pointed out, um, in Honestly, John is one of my favorite places to preach from during the Christmas season because it highlights the incarnation side and kind of points to divinity uh, and deity for Jesus. But the Gospel of Mark, 
uh, is an interesting uh, place to go because you don't normally go there and there's not this narrative account of his coming. You're just right up front confronted with the fact that this is going to be a story, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, uh, and then starts quoting Old Testament. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you see in Mark where he assumes all authority to forgive sins. In Mark chapter 2, you begin to see that right off the bat. You begin to see that he claimed to have the truth in Mark one twenty two. Um, you're you're going to begin to see these passages unfold of his divinity. Yeah. And when you refer back to the Old Testament and you hear these echoes and these allusions, yeah. you begin to go, oh, that's what the scribes were hearing. Yeah. That's why they're ripping their clothes. Yeah. They understand that he is claiming to be God because those were God's acts in the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. And... Um, like you say, it brings the light to what the claim is when you realize their reaction is over against what they already understood. And and Mark's gospel does a good job of not only laying forth a claim, but showing the Old Testament piece, at least alluding back to. And then when you see that in its context and realize the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible, the Old Testament was the Pharisees' Bible, the scribes' Bible. That's what they knew. That's what they studied. Like we would really focus in on the New Testament and the Gospels and wanting to know. That's what they were doing. I need to know my God, so this is what I study. And Jesus is pulling these passages of the promise of a Messiah, of God coming to be their Savior, and then pointing them back to himself or showing how he has that same authority. And, and you see that they're responding to that. They're reacting against that. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I try to tell my apologetic students, I say, think of it like this. What if I said to you, run the race well, keep your eye on the prize? Hmm. I would be alluding to the New Testament. You would know exactly where I'm referring to. I could say things uh, regarding our culture. I could say something like, Oh, well, you definitely don't want to be around that person. They seem to have the acts of Hitler. Immediately, mm. someone would say, oh, well, I know exactly what she's talking about. You don't yeah. have to go through the whole passage. You don't have to go through the whole book. You understand because you know the context of that. And we can just give an example of Mark because I know you have uh, the illusion of Psalm which we can look at in Mark chapter two, he goes in, you know, he's teaching and these friends bring their paralytic friend over because they want him to be healed. And Jesus mm -hmm. tells him to get up, you know, take his mat and walk. And, you know, everybody's appalled by this. But if you look at the passage and you go back and read it, then he's forgiving sin, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. He's not just forgiving sin. He's healing diseases. Yeah. And then what is Psalm 103? Yeah, Psalm 103 talks about um, praising God for mercies that He shows. And it, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget none of His benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. This is who God is. He's the healer and forgiver. 
Yeah. That's what Jesus does in that passage. And again, we read the story and we focus on the guy on the mat and his friends and how much they loved the guy on the mat and all the work that they went through so their friend could meet Jesus and, and how merciful Jesus is. And because we miss that Old Testament nuance, we don't realize what he is doing in that moment is saying, everybody look. It's God in the flesh. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can see the same thing in Mark chapter 4 when he commands the waves and the sea. When you look back into Psalm 107, 28 and 29, God's doing the same thing. Right. And so you see those same acts. And when we see those consistencies, we really can identify that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's proclaiming this authority, this idea that he is God in the flesh. And I know that there's arguments against that. Right. You know, like they would say, well, what about, you know, John 14, 28, where it says the Father is greater than I, or maybe Mark 10, 18, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And we need to look at those objections. Yeah. That is for sure. But at the same time, we need to understand that those really aren't obstacles but they really will further give evidence the deity of God in Christ yeah. if we examine them like we should. Yeah. And, and I would just kind of end with that question hanging in the air a little bit. Of how do we answer some of those objections? If these really are the claims of Jesus, yet there's other people pointing out, but he also said, which seems to point away from the fact that he is divine or believed himself to be divine, and we're gonna hear somebody maybe throw those questions at us. How do we answer that? And I, I would just say, we're gonna leave that for next time and talk about it more. But it's a great conversation, a good place to start, and I hope this helps people begin to process how to worship the Savior during Christmas time.